This week's show, we sit down with local councillor Joe Sargent, who recently defected from Labour to join the Greens, about what made her make the jump. And as Home Secretary Priti Patel proposes one of the biggest overhauls of the asylum-seeking system this country has seen in decades, we discuss what it means and how Bristol's refugee charities have been reacting to it. And sticking on the subject of controversial legislation being pushed through by our Home Secretary, we're going to kick off the show with a story everybody's talking about, the further to kill the bill protest against the police and crime bill, which has taken place over the past week. You are listening to The Bristol Agenda on BCFM with me, Priyanka. Craval and Tim Hinson will kick off after this song. to stop us protesting because we have a right to protest we're also here to say that we have a right to the land of this country to roam it freely to live on it and we won't accept the loss of the right to trespass which disproportionately affects gypsy roma and traveler families and communities but most importantly in terms of what happened on tuesday night I think it's really important to show the police it's not acceptable to crush peaceful demonstration with with disproportionate force and that we should be respected when we protest. Today to say that the police do not So that was a clip taken from uh, the protest against the police and crime bill, which took place on Friday. So on last week's show, we reported about the first Kill the Bill protest, which was a peaceful demonstration which escalated sharply into clashes between protesters and riot police. Um, You know, we all know the scenes by now of police vans being torched and the windows of Bridewell Police Station being shattered. But now it seems with the protests that have been staged this week, uh, the police are really cracking down with a vengeance. So on Tuesday, around 100 staged a sit-in protest outside City Hall to highlight how the bill would target um, travellers and van-dwelling communities. It was a peaceful protest, you know, from people I've been speaking to. There were uh, people singing songs, handing out soup. There were some tents to kind of mirror an encampment. Um, but riot police very forcefully broke this up. There were battering protesters with shields, batons, fists. Um, and there are ever-increasing stories about violence coming through. Apparently an offer, officer uh, allegedly punched a protester, pulled him away by his hair... Um, and it was a similar story this Friday where, where I was as well, where there was a march and several hours of peaceful protest and a sit-in outside the station. And again, at 10 p.m., uh, police moved in, horses, dogs and protesters were struck repeatedly by riot shields, knocked to the ground and lots of people suffering head wounds. So this morning when I was on the One Love Breakfast show, we had police area commander, the man in charge of policing in the Bristol city centre, Superintendent Mark Runacres on the show. 
So the whole interview can be found at bcfmradio.com. Uh, I recommend people checking it out, uh, and it's 30 minutes long. But there were three, in my opinion, really newsworthy claims made. So I'm just going to take us through those now to get us all up to speed. So this first one concerns the protest on Tuesday on College Green. So throughout Tuesday, we spoke to people at the council, in the mayor's office, we spoke to the director of public health to assess what would be the appropriate and necessary response. And it was decided collectively that it would be necessary to move people from College Green because there were concerns around public health risk that that gathering would bring. We had concerns about how that could grow, that that encampment could grow if it went uh, unchecked. So we made numerous appeals throughout the day and into the evening for people there to disperse and move on. Going through the four E's process that we would in relation to policing COVID regs, engage, explain, encourage before enforcement. But when we got to later in the evening, um, a decision was made that we needed to move through and clear that area. So there's uh, Mark Renekers, um for the first time revealing that the mayor's office uh, was consulted, was part of that decision uh, to clear the protests of College Green on Tuesday night. And of course, that was the subject of quite a lot of criticism. Uh, next, Pat Hart, uh, who was interviewing, asked uh, the superintendent about some of the images that have been seen of officers appearing to strike protesters who are sitting on the floor with their riot shields. The, the tactics that are used, the shield strikes that, that, that you're referring to, that's an absolutely legitimate and, and trained tactic that officers uh, are, are coached on in their in their public order training. It's approved by the College of Policing. And Yeah, and then finally, there's been footage circulating online of several journalists um, being confronted by the police. Uh, they, several people have alleged assaulted, but anyway, there's certainly been a confrontation. Um Here, the superintendent talks about how he would like to see journalists behave. Uh, So there's two separate clips here. And then he's speaking specifically about the incident where the mirror journalist uh, was uh, hit by police. There's some who are showing up to the protest to to cover the the, the reporting who are wearing protective helmets, a a tabard with press written on. And they'll go and seek out the the incident commander behind the police lines, which we facilitate, introduce themselves, say, you know, how can we work best together? Where do you want us? Where don't you want us? And now the clip concerning the mirror journalist. Someone who stood to the side of the road, which is what happened with the, the mirror journalist that you may have read the accounts of. That guy, to my understanding, has got no visual identification on him to say he's in the press. He's not moved up the road when the officers have have shouted that instruction towards him. And these shielded cordons moving up the road. Now, at that time, if I was a PSU commander, as I have been, as the inspector on the ground, I don't want my officers to stop and engage people in conversation around what or why they're there. That's not what we're doing at that point. We've given the instructions. We've given the warnings. There's all this chaos around them. People need to move up the road. And if they don't, in that mode, then they'll be encouraged to do so, I say politely, with the shield being used to move them up the road. Um, Well, there we go. So, uh, Pranker, we'll we'll just talk about this briefly. Uh, We're going to cover this topic in a slightly different angle. But um, can you talk us through what's sort of newsworthy there? I mean, we could hardly expect um, Mark to come out there and sort of attack his own officers, could we? Yeah, sure. But I think there have been um, 
some questions raised about the use of force and I think what makes it even more unpalatable is then how it is portrayed in the media or in police press statements. Uh, A lot of the police press statements have been very quick to call this um, violent disorders and you know even from Westminster we've this has been called violent thuggery and actually on that uh, Tuesday there were far more injuries from protesters and than there were from officers. Also, earlier on, we had um, reports which hit headlines after the first um, protest about how the poli- one police suffered a punctured lung and there were broken bones. And then in a statement a few days later, they retracted that statement and said, luckily, no one had broken a bone. So I think it's also... A, a kind of like double hit of a the use of force to shut down what what are peaceful protests, and then how it's narrativized to make out that the protesters are using this kind of undue violence when actually they're not answering questions about their own use of violence. Mm. And it, it, picking up on the bit about the journalist as well, it did seem a bit of a sort of flipping of the burden of proof where mm. um, it was beholden on journalists to sort of identify themselves. He even suggested going and making themselves known to the officers and asking them, you know, where would it be helpful for me to stand? What do you want us covering? What do you want us not covering? And, you know, you, you don't really have to have too much imagination to see how that's not fully compatible with sort of fearless journalism is it totally and i also think you know it's a bit undermined from something that happened at the at the bristol cable where who i work with and there two reporters adam cantwell corn and alon avaram were at the front of the police line and they were being pushed back by police and repeatedly saying um you know we're reporters we're reporters they had their press card on show and the the policeman is clearly dismissing them uh he, he pushes along and and is not listening so i also feel that that undermines what what Acres said this morning okay so um the nonetheless uh the there have certainly been uh disturbances over the last week of protesting in bristol and a lot of the sort of political response to that has alleged that the protesters have undermined the cause that they're looking to support. Uh, and indeed, this has become the sort of common sense among uh, quite a few of the political leaders in the city. Next, we're going to speak to Dr. Oscar Berglund from the University of Bristol, who uh, studies social movements and takes an opposing view. So I'm here with Dr. Oscar Berglund, who's a lecturer at the University of Bristol, who studies social movements and civil disobedience. So, Oscar, the mayor said, if the protests are meant to reduce the likelihood of the bill, then the actions of some of the protesters are politically illiterate and strategically inept. The actions make the bill more likely. What do you say to that? I say that he's just expressing his own preferences for what successful political campaigning looks like that is not based in any kind of uh, analysis of of what kind of forms of protest works and and what don't and in what context. I guess people listening would have a sympathy with the view that Marvin Rees expressed there and they suggest that seeing scenes of riot vans on fire Uh, could alienate public opinion. Is public opinion important for protests being successful? Public opinion on the issue, yes. And 
I'm not saying that you can't make tactical mistakes as, as protesters. Of course you can, uh, absolutely. Uh, but there's a huge difference between popularity of certain instances of protest and popularity of the cause of the protest themselves. I mean, we can just turn back the clock a year here in Bristol and look at, you know, did a majority of Bristolians support the, the ripping down of the Colson statue in the way that it happened? No. Mm. Did they support it coming down? Yes. Right. So those two are two really different things. So uh, that that people don't need to support the protest act itself in order to mm. support the cause. So the Colston statue is is one interesting example, but yeah, I take it that you're drawing from a bigger data set here. So what what's the evidence behind your view? So almost all protest successful, important protest or social positive social change has been accompanied by a diversity of tactics. And almost any big changes come with some form of confrontation uh, with 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 police or with with other kind of forces. It's very difficult to get big changes without any kind of kind of confrontation. But that is just one small part of the movement. I mean, the movement against this bill in this country is broad and widespread, and a, a, a range of tactics and, and strategies. And this is just one aspect of them that happens to get a lot of media attention. If confrontation with the police is inevitable, I mean, can you go further than that? Is is there any sort of strategic utility in having confrontation with the police? Because in this case, because we are talking about protest for the right to protest, then mm-hmm. it would be... Uh, it would be difficult to do that without actually protesting. And what this specific conditions now with corona restrictions that mean that that um, with COVID restrictions that mean that protest is not fully legal. It's not uh, so people are sort of breaking the rules mm. by even turning out to a protest, which means that you can't have proper organizers or anything like that. So basically, what protesters are showing now and what these confrontations with police are showing and the police violence is, is showing is that this is a lot what this is what will happen in the future if this bill comes through a lot mm. of protest would look like what we're seeing now people often point to well a couple of examples so mahatma gandhi and the independence movement in india or the martin luther king and the civil rights movements in the usa as examples of change being brought about by peaceful protests how would you respond to those uh, seeming sort of counter examples um, i've studied civil disobedience and civil disobedience can certainly uh, be uh, very very effective but i mean the u.s civil rights movement was not limited to to martin luther king the u.s civil rights movement had uh, you know the black panthers uh, etc as well so who again used a diversity of tactics not just one we can look back to the suffragettes here. I mean, if the suffragettes would be around now using the tactics that they did then, you know, we mm. see them as a civil disobedience movement, but they would no doubt be, be classed as a terrorist organization. So, you know, it it's uh, no, very few such big changes here or elsewhere have been brought around by mm. entirely peaceful means. You've argued that people don't actually necessarily need overall public opinion to be on their side. Um, in terms of the tactics to make their protest effective. So what is the actual mechanism by which protest can change politics? And specifically in the sort of current political context, 
in the UK at the moment, where we have a Tory government very comfortably in charge at the moment. I mean, what kind of pressure can protesters put to bear on the government here? Not all protest is aimed specifically at, at particular policy and so on, right? This one is. So, uh, and and in order to, so what we need now for this bill is to, for enough Tory MPs to say, think that this is a bad idea. And mm. in order to realise that, they can look out the window and see what's happening, and then they will see that this is a bad idea. Uh, so uh, in regards to this this bill, that's what I would say. But I mean, otherwise, protest is, you know, what was the BLM protest about? It's about deeper social issue, about racism mm. and, and colonial heritage. Uh, so, uh, you know, the were the BLM protests successful? Well, they were certainly successful in raising the issue of racism in 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 this country and not least in the in the United States for mm. people to talk about it and uh, and so on. So you know, w- were they successful? Well, it depends what you what you mean by success, doesn't it? You've kind of hinted at this argument a little bit. There's the argument that the current policing bill might actually make the British state more unstable because it makes this kind of disorderly protest more likely. Following on from that, to what extent does protest activity ever actually protect the status quo by giving people an outlet to let off steam? That's a good question. Uh, maybe it's slightly too big a question to uh, to answer here. Uh, there's certainly that view that in you know in a liberal society there is a role for protest as form of civil disobedience, mm. and if that protest simply uh, abides by the rules that for protests that are set then actually it isn't very it often isn't very efficient and that's what you know both BLM and Extinction Rebellion in this country have realized that you know it's by maybe pushing those boundaries of 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 what what is allowed and what isn't allowed uh, and and uh, being more sort of confrontational uh, can often well it gets you more publicity and it can have a great uh, societal effect okay so uh, so far in this conversation we've put all the agency with protesters which is a little bit strange in some ways because um, the majority of power in this country does seem to lie with uh, you know with the the government and with police and you know various institutions so can we look at it from the other way? I mean, what are the conditions that make the the kind of scenes that we've seen in Bristol this week and we, you know, we last saw in 2011 and more likely? What are there certain sets of social conditions, of political conditions that um, make disorder more likely to occur? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't want to draw direct, direct comparisons between now and and I mean 2011, uh, but I mean in 2011, you know, I think that that you know inequality um, and and austerity had a, a huge part to to play uh, in in that. Obviously, also that was those uh, protests started with you know the London uh, riots as they mm. called in 2011 started with the police shooting, uh, controversial mm. police shooting. So. Uh, also centered around uh, around the actions of the police. Um, yeah, um, I think. That- Thank you to Oscar Berglund there, who is a lecturer on social movements. I think this 
is a great interview because it speaks to a line of argument that we're hearing a lot at the moment that you know these these protests are a way and the way they're playing out are just playing into the hands of the opposition or you know this will discredit the movement or, or what it actually stands for and a lot of people who are very quick to to come out and condemn the the violence as they've said and you know as we've already touched on maybe who is per perpetrating the violence on who is is a bit contentious but i've never felt yeah i just didn't really feel that that argument held much water and maybe there is the uh, another strategic point to all of this that maybe if not to change policy the other strategic aim of protest is maybe just to remind us of our collective power or to bring people together or to kind of energize a groundswell of uh, yeah, of, of people power. I mean, what, what do you think about that, Tin? I mean, I, I definitely think it is a legitimate question to debate. And, you know, and I think it's legitimate for people to be upset by, uh, for instance, I mean, the the violence that being alleged here. Initially, it was alleged that protesters had hurt the police and that they'd broken their bones. That statement has now been retracted. Um, so instead, the allegations are that, well, that riot van the police vans were set on fire uh windows were smashed at bridewell police station uh there were fireworks thrown um and uh, and laser pens were used and the, there's also been the allegation that bottles have been thrown um all the other th- points that i've mentioned i've actually seen on video i haven't actually seen that third one on video so you know considering the past experience i'll bear a little bit of skepticism on that um and it, it is a genuinely difficult question. I mean, like, obviously, you can't just sort of carte blanche say all riots are good. Uh, but I also would argue that you can't also say that all riots are bad because otherwise you'd have to go back into history and say, you know, the English Civil War, the Chartists, the Peasants' Revolt, the French yeah. Revolution, you know, the, never mind the ones that we talked about there, the civil rights movement. Are wrong. And I think in a way this, you know, for people who say I this just I support the the aims of the protesters, but this is just going to undermine their message. This is good news because you, you can you, you don't have to sort of tread that line. You can just directly say what you feel. You don't always have to mediate your politics through thinking what would some imagined other people person think of this? Is this going to? convinced some person not me but somebody else that uh, suddenly that they actually support the the pretty patel's agenda exactly i think that there's another point here of maybe that it isn't so planned and this is the the point of not not mm. allowing protest to be organized but maybe if you don't organize and if you don't hold this space and you cannot monitor the progress of something then what stops emotions from just bubbling up you know well that that's right i mean you know i do think that we should defend like logic here i mean mm. burning police fans smashing window you know there are already lots of laws against this so i think that we should have a bit of faith that people can distinguish between what this um, bill is trying to do, which is to criminalise a whole raft of things that aren't already criminalised and uh, stuff to do with protest and stuff to do with travellers as well. And, you know, what happened last week, what, whatever people's opinions on that are. Exactly. I mean, this is all a really interesting question on do the do the ends justify the means 
you know, and, and that's what, what's potentially dividing uh, opinion on on the meat on, on what's happened. And also, you know, one man's freedom fighter, another person's terrorist. I know you you mentioned that um, uh, Oscar Berglund had a good tweet about this. I think. Um, yeah, that's it. He, so he he said that this was. Um, Anybody that was saying that one particular tactic or another undermines the whole movement is essentially sort of mistaking their own sort of moral preferences, which, again, to emphasise, it's absolutely fine to have your own moral preferences for uh, what he saw to be the evidence, you know, his role as being an actual academic studying this. Mm-hmm. Right, on to our next story. So, Labour, ex-Labour councillor Joe Sargent is moving to the Green Party. Here is our roving reporter, Rohan Roy, sitting down to chat with Joe to find out why. Could you just take me through some of your reasons for, mm. let's start with leaving the Labour Party, and maybe we'll go on to joining the Greens in a second. Well, um, I mean, I've been thinking about it quite a lot. You know, I'm trying to sort of look at it from... Um, try and be a little bit less focused on me. Uh, but I think when it comes down to it, I do really struggle with that kind of top-down authoritarian model, which unfortunately the Labour Party seems to be increasing in uh, you know as its way of running things. It's almost like there are two completely separate problems, but they're quite similar at the same time. So, you know, the national Labour problem is this kind of, you know, authoritarian, people are afraid to say you know, anything in the public domain, they're worried they're going to get into trouble. A lot of people have been suspended. Um, It's got more, I think it's got, I don't know. I mean, you're quite young. I'm quite old, but not mega old. (laughs) But, you know, I think that there's always been a lot of infighting in the Labour Party, but I think it's magnified or amplified now that we have social media and all these electronic platforms and so i think that people are more likely to kind of get caught caught out saying something that isn't appropriate and of course everyone's i everyone has a different different idea what's appropriate so obviously i'm not talking about anything remotely kind of you know unpleasant relating to race sex or any other protected characteristic um i'm just talking about people having opinions you know like some when someone just describes Keir Starmer as Sir Keith, um, Keith Stalin or something like that, you know, it's like all of a sudden that person is then seen as bringing the party into disrepute. And so there's, that's what they use. I think they use the rule book a lot, but they use it very selectively. So they get people, they don't, and it's some, it feels, I suppose somebody could say it feels a bit like a conspiracy, but at the same time, it, I, I heard someone saying something about conspiracy. It's not, it's not a conspiracy. It's just a lot of people with the same look at things the same way. So, you know, they think it, they don't like left, you know, they don't like left leaning people. They don't like people that poke fun. They don't like anybody in charge having their sort of authority questioned in any way. And it, that to me is quite, it's quite a sort of, has quite a fascist undertone. So you're feeling that kind of like, sen- not censorship necessarily from top down, but a kind of group consensus you felt constrained within the Labour Party to not... Well, I think in the per- on, um, as a councillor, I did feel like that. But I think I recognise that, you know, it's a, uh, when you have a WIT system, there is a, um, a discipline that you kind of do sign up to be part of. But that has to work both ways. So if, um, you know, if you're expected to go along with a majority decision, that majority decision has to be made with all the information and not made assuming 
that it was going to go a certain way. And, uh, you know, the example being that, you know, when you make a, uh, when the mayor announces a major budget decision before we've gone to full council and before it's gone to the Labour group, then that's not really democratic. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, I know that it might have been that it would have got it would have got through or, re- you know, it would have got through anyway. But. It's not really right to do it that way. The right, the, the right thing to do is to make sure that people have a chance to discuss and debate major decisions and also that everyone is kept in the loop about a decision-making process, even if it's something relatively minor, so that they know it's happened. Yeah. And it's difficult because everyone, no one's got the time to be 100% focused on every sort of minute detail that goes on in the council but at least if the information is made readily available and people have a chance to discuss major decisions before they are put into the public domain, then I think people are fairly happy to follow the rules. Yeah. And so so was that the tipping point for you? Well, it was. It, in some ways it was, but I wouldn't have just gone. Yeah. You know, I mean, why would I have gone? I had, you know, I was a few, I'm a few weeks away from council elections. I'd intended to stand again. Why would I just walk away at that point when I could have walked away so many times before and felt like it, but didn't? No, the reason I went was because I was on the verge of being suspended because I wouldn't make a sincere, a full and sincere apology and say I wouldn't do something again. And it was that, you know, it, it's, it felt a bit, it feels a little bit, I mean, I don't know why George Orwell keeps coming to mind, but, you know, I don't know if you've read 1984, but there's a point where um, the main character is being tortured and he has to, what he has to say in the end is to say something that he knows isn't true, but then he's got to believe it's true. Yeah. And okay, yeah, I didn't have like, a, I wasn't put in a cage with a ton of rats, you know, it wasn't like that bad. <laughs> But the but the, the the idea was that I had to absolutely kind of disavow what I'd said and believed before, and to me that that I just thought no, that's just not. And I wrote an apology. I wrote two apologies because I was told I had to write an apology. I wrote two, and I, and they were both rejected. So in the end, I thought stuff this. You know, it's not worth it. You know, there's only so much you can do before you think, no. Nah. And so, so you feel this is symptomatic of a problem in Labour, you know, with the national leadership or with the way that the Labour Party, the direction it's heading in? I don't think there's going to be like a ton of Labour councillors defecting to the Greens. There might be a few, uh, not because the Greens aren't a good party, but because I think people in who who sit as councillors are mostly quite... Let's just say they're quite well. They like they like to conform. Mm-hmm. They tend to be more uh, have a higher level of respect for authority than I do. You know, who's to say how many of them will lose their seats in May? So uh, that was Joe Sargent um, speaking to Rohan Roy there. So I should say uh, the other people standing in that seat uh, in. Uh, Avonmouth and Lawrence Weston there are uh, councillors sorry there are candidates from the Labour Party uh, the Conservatives, Lib Dems and uh, Green Party Um, uh, not the nominations close on the 8th of April so the full list of candidates has not yet been announced so I was 
I was a little bit divided listening to that, Priyanka, because I, in some ways it sounded like, you know, Ro- Rohan was trying to sort of tease out the politics of it, but a lot of it sounded like sort of personal animosity that was going on there. Like, is there actually any politics to it, or is it just some people have fallen out? Well, yeah, you're right. It is It is hard to glean. I think it's an interesting... Uh, it was an interesting interview, especially given the upcoming local elections. And obviously this will be interesting to, to Bristol in particular, who does have a predominantly Labour um, stronghold. That They're going into this election a very fractured party. And I think we often hear of these rumblings of infighting within the party. And every now and again, they, they sort of come out. So, you know, maybe listeners remember when we were talking about the budget and... Uh, Nicola Bowden-Jones stood uh, stood up and, and openly criticised several members of... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, people talk about sort of, you know, abusive language on social media or something. <laughs> I mean, these are elected officials and um, Joe Sargent there was comparing her treatment to being sort of tortured and this sort of thing. I mean, it, it does seem a little bit over the top, doesn't it? Well, I think my, my, my point being with with Nicola Bowden-Jones is that evidently there are dissenting councillors who are making noise within the ranks. And, you know, I think there have often been talks, I think especially in Bristol City Council, kind of allegations of a slightly toxic environment um, that, that, that's happening. And I, <laughs> we have to admit that Labour is getting a bit trigger-happy on the old suspension button. And so maybe there is a bit of a... Uh, I don't know, something, something going on beyond just, say, personal personality clashes. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, this is the nature of politics. And, I, you know, I, I suppose as well, to be fair to uh, Joe Sargent as well, you know, it's not like when uh, MPs or whatever have defected party um, you know, just after they've been elected. So, for instance, you know, the, the Change UK people or whatever, she's defected right before a mm. sort of general election, so, or, sorry, uh, local elections. So voters will have um, a chance to sort of make up their mind. And, yeah, it'd be good if we can, you know, talk about some of the issues as well as these sort of... the, the sort of grappling for power between certain individuals within the council. Oh, absolutely. I think it also raises the question of there will be there are as well as uh, disaffected Labour councillors, there are disaffected Labour voters. And where will they go? Will they similarly Mm. make the move from Labour to the Green Party? And is that necessarily the logical uh, shift? Is that actually where they're going to be able Mm. to express the kind of uh, policies that they hope to see in the Labour Party? Uh, Will those things be achieved in the Greens? I think it'll be Mm. really interesting to see going into the elections. Yeah. And I mean, just to mention some of the other parties as well. I mean, you know, some of the political content of Joe Sargent's uh, interview there and her criticisms has centred around the sort of centralised nature of the elected mayor system. Um, And I think, uh, well, certainly the Lib Dems and the Greens are pledging to abolish the mayorality if they were elected. I I believe that's right. Um, I'm I'm not sure what the Conservative position on it is. but yeah, uh, something for us to keep monitoring. Right, should we move on to our final story today? Yes, let's. So uh, this is the news that Priti Patel, Home Secretary, is seeking to make a change to the asylum law under the new system. People seeking protection as refugees will have their claim 
uh, their claim assessed based on how they arrive in the UK. Uh, Labour have hit back on plans saying they lack compassion and competence. We're going to play a clip of uh, Priti Patel uh, explaining the, the policy to the Commons and then we'll go straight on to Fleur Williams who is a local migration specialist to tell us more. At the heart of our new plan for immigration is a simple principle, fairness. Access to UK's asylum system should be based on need, not the ability to pay people smugglers. If you enter illegally from a safe country like France, where you should and could have claimed asylum, you are not seeking refuge from persecution, as is the intended purpose of the asylum system. Instead, you are choosing the UK as your preferred destination, and you are doing so at the expense of those with nowhere else to go. Our system is collapsing under the pressure of parallel illegal routes to asylum, facilitated by criminal smugglers. The existence of parallel routes is deeply unfair, advancing those with the means to pay smugglers over those in desperate need. The capacity of our asylum system is not unlimited, and so the presence of economic migrants, which these illegal routes introduce, limit our ability to properly support others in genuine need of protection. This is manifestly unfair to those desperately waiting to be resettled in the UK. Basically, it's it quite. there's quite a few chapters. I think there's nine chapters in total. Um, but the ones that are kind of the most concerning for me is um, kind of the proposals to further offshore immigration detention, the um, more extensive um, assessments they want to do in determining who is a child and who is an adult and therefore who is kind of more deserving and returning um, people to um, third country nations um, and the justification that they're basically using in this bill uh, relentlessly is that they want to counter modern slavery and regain sovereignty of their borders which are kind of classic arguments that are used in anti-immigration um, discourse and the things to do with sovereignty that's how basically um domestic law can kind sorry international law can be overturned in favor of domestic law if they believe that it's within that kind of the nation's kind of interest um that someone should basically not be re um, refused um a claim or be processed further um in the refugee system but in all in all um her claims um, that our system is collapsing under the burden of demand is doesn't really make sense as the number of applications in the country last year was well below half of its 2002 peak. So I would kind of ask for a real um, assessment on her claims and really look at um, what um, statistics she's using and referring to when um, she's looking at kind of um, migration flows. And I know that we shouldn't refer to them as flows um, because that's kind of stating that they're essentially mass and not listening to individual perspectives. But also when we're looking at those kind of claims, um, we need to look at um, them in light of the pandemic um, and how that potentially could have reduced numbers um, but not only that but it could have um, pushed more people to um, seeking kind of what we would consider illegal routes 
So, yeah, I think a proper assessment needs to be done of that. Um, and she also states that she wants people to really fall within the 1951 convention so that people um, are people who are looking for refugee status are persecuted on real grounds. But what we need to remember is this is we are looking at a period right now where we're looking on 70 years on from that convention and when it was created and we are celebrating its anniversary this year so it is extremely disturbing to see that the government seeking to violate international law and pledging to remove asylum seekers who have entered the uk are passing through safe countries so the 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 international law that they're saying um, that they're seeking to legitimise and to use is the ones that they're actually essentially violating. I'm I'm extremely concerned um, because I haven't I don't know of any countries previously that have um, agreed to take on third con um, to take on um, asylum seekers. Um, but what will the UK do in order to force them to do this? So will they pay them essentially to um, house people? And this, you know, we are looking also at the five year anniversary of the deal that was struck between um, the, um, Europe and with Turkey, which, which prevented lots of movement into Europe um, and has kept lots of people um, in a state of limbo um, within Turkey and on Greek islands. So prior to Brexit, the UK was part of the Dublin regulation, which provided a framework through which asylum seekers who had travelled through safe EU um, nations before reaching Britain could be returned to those countries. And Britain returned um, 891 individuals under this law between 2017 and 2020. But with this being you know, having ended and um, essentially not knowing of any third country third countries um, that have agreed to accept to take individuals, I kind of see this proposal as not legitimate. And I would, you know, I would really like to see how she's, you know, struck this and whose support has she actually got. Okay, so that was uh, Fleur Williams there explaining uh, some of the problems that she sees, potential problems with the new um, the new rules for refugees and asylum seekers that are being proposed by Priti Patel, who indeed we heard before that point. Um, so the problem that Priti Patel says that she's claiming is, uh, says that she's dealing with here is that, uh, the one, she says the UK is overwhelmed by refugees and asylum seekers. Priyanka, is that true? Um... <laughs> I mean, I think I think it might portray a more of an ideological stance than it does a realistic situation. I think of the European countries, uh, Britain took some of the least uh, refugees. I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah. So last year, Germany received five times more applications than the UK in 2020. Uh, and then it was followed by France, Greece and Spain. So although there were 30,000 applications for um, refugee status in the UK um, last year, which sound, you know, possibly sounds like a reasonably big number, um, actually that's quite small in the, the European context. But in a world context, um, it 
completely minuscule. So most refugees actually stay in the region that they come from. It kind of makes sense if you think mm. of it, about it. So uh, the UNHCR says that four out of five stay in their region of displacement and consequently are hosted by developing countries. So the poorer countries in the world, not the rich countries. So remember the UK had 30,000 uh, applications last year. Uh, in total, there's about 133,000 refugees um, in the UK. Turkey has 3.6 million. Um, Pakistan has 1.4 million. And, you know, when you look at the sort of countries that asylum seekers to the UK come from, I mean, you know, we're looking at Iran, Albania, Iraq and Eritrea. I mean... You know, anyone who knows a little bit of history can, and, you know, even recent history can mm -hmm. see that we've, you know, it's not like the problems in those countries are just things that have just happened with no involvement from Britain. Well, exactly. I think there is, there's another part of this, even if you put your, your ethics aside, is, is how, is whether this plan is even feasible, mm. um, you know, can you actually dis you know, discriminate who gets uh, protection, uh, who have a recognised case for protection of some refugees just on, on how they reach the UK? So mm. the, the UN Refugee uh, Convention says that states can't penalise people in need who come directly from their homeland or anyone who has a good cause to enter a nation mm. illegally. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, o over the Brexit negotiations, the uh, Britain has... Quite gleefully said, well, you know, if we don't want to follow international law, we're a sovereign country and we can decide to overrule it. Well, exactly. But spe speaking of the EU, you know, they say that um, yeah, the Home Office says that they'd, they'd want to send people back to France or elsewhere. But how is that going to happen? Because there is no legal agreement as it stands with the EU nations to take these these people back. Mm. Um yeah, so the, the uh, and uh, I mean, what about uh, in terms of the argument that this will discourage um, human trafficking and modern slavery? I mean, is there anything to that? Um, well, you know, I think it's interesting what what Labour's shadow Home Secretary Nick Nick Thomas Simmons said, which was that actually it risked this proposal risk made it even worse for the victims of human trafficking because it would make the it harder for them to seek help once they did get to the UK. Okay. Um, so I think that's an, it's an interesting point of view. So the, the argument there is that it's um, it's making people more vulnerable so that if they are being exploited or they've been trafficked or something, if they can't speak to anyone in authority because, you know, they're, they're going to be illegal, uh, then, you know, it makes it makes them more powerless and more vulnerable. Exactly. I think it just makes this really a, quite an arbitrary division as well between the deser those deserving and undeserving of help as if you have a choice whether, you know, or, or like a really informed, empowered choice about whether you choose to enter legally or illegally, you know, because for many people, mm. uh, you know, being trafficked is often not a choice or having to go kind of clandestinely is, the only, is, is their only kind of option. And I don't think this legislation takes that into account. Mm. So, you know, if we've looked at some of the ways that this legislation isn't going to do what it actually says it's going to do and, you know, it's actually going to make things worse for refugees and asylum seekers, you know, why is the government doing it? Why are the Conservatives so keen to do it? I mean, 
Yeah, that is interesting. I think con the Conservative government have often won kind of a populist vote based on being the party that's tough on immigration. Uh, historically, I think for the last few elections, it's definitely been a I policy. mean, not just Conservative Party, it was sort of New Labour that had the rhetoric of the bogus asylum seekers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, of course. But I, mm. I, I guess just thinking about this party in particular, that this... This is an ideological position that I think they've prided themselves on or, or makes mm. makes them distinct. I mean, you know, some people have made the argument that, you know, it's a dis purely a distraction to stop people talking about, you know, bad handling of the coronavirus pandemic or mm. uh, this sort of thing. Yeah, um, it, it may well could be. Is that is that your your feeling that it's a could be a bit of a smokescreen? I mean, it, it, it is the sort of the the way of operating isn't it to sort of divide and rule you you know you focus your attention on the most sort of controversial topics because you know people do have different views on this uh and you know people call it the culture war isn't it In, instead of focusing on the issues that unite the vast majority of people um you know some of those sort of material things people being paid more you know classic things unemployment etc you pick this wedge issue that um people go either way on and you just sort of it crowds out the space for talking about other issues at all yeah i mean it wouldn't be the first time i think that um the other or the the I immigrants or asylum seekers to this country have been kind of scapegoated as a mm. as a distraction right so we are and now going to play a little preview of next week's Demand a New Normal with Kieran Katra. Uh, so this is a 15-minute uh, interview, and you're going to get the first four minutes now as a little taster to whet your appetite. Uh, and we'll put the rest up online, and we'll play it out in full next week. Good evening to you, and welcome to our weekly Demand a New Normal session. Brought to you by myself, Karen Karcher, via Plan C with BCFM. A session for you and me to come together and think about what isn't working in this old normal, this everyday existence pre-COVID and pre-2020. We move on from which parts have been hurting us to what we want to do better this time around. We consider what our demand should be from the powers that be, from our communities and from ourselves. We aim to gather your demands and use them in helping us come together to formulate a better, fairer, new world. We broadcast interviews with fascinating groups and individuals who are actively engaged in demanding change, as they too refuse to go back to the way things were. Today we're talking about demands centred around our police service. In the UK, the police sits within the Home Office, and the Home Office is the lead government department for all things security. Currently in charge is our Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and the Home Office strapline reads, The first duty of the government is to keep citizens safe and the country secure. That the Home Office has been <clears throat> at the front line of this endeavour since 1782. As such, the Home Office plays a fundamental role in the security and economic prosperity of the United Kingdom. There you go. That's your little preview, a little sneak peek of what you're getting next week. Right. Uh, there's one thing we love more than discussing current events and uh, the week's news and utopian things. In general, it's Kanye West. And uh, so we're going to end you with a song. I'm 
Hey, love the show. Uh, I was wondering if it could end with some uh, Kanye West at all. But got love for you, but I'm not loving you way I wanted to. Gotta keep it going, keep the loving going, keep it on a roll. Only God knows if I be 